Today is Palm Sunday, as you have already heard, but um, you also may have noticed in your bulletin that it is also Passion Sunday. And um, we, have a, we have a huge task today of trying to get our minds around and to hold in our minds the events of this entire week, not just the events of Palm Sunday, but the events of the Passion, all the way through Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and his death. We save resurrection for next Sunday, but in between now and resurrection, we have a, we have a huge task of getting that all in our minds and trying to comprehend something of all of it. So this morning I've, I've chosen for you just a, a small piece of the Passion narrative, one of the incidents and events that took place during this week that lies ahead. Um, the entire narrative takes many chapters in the gospel. Um, more than we can attend to in one service. So I have yet another reading for you to add to the Palm Sunday narrative you heard earlier. If you are able to stand to hear the gospel, would you do so again? Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away for the second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink of it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him a large crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And once he came up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you are here to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and arrested him. Suddenly one of those with him put his hand on his sword and drew it and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen this way? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not arrest me. But all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
When we reach this point in um, our observance of Lent, as I mentioned earlier, we have a big slice of Jesus' story to deal with. Matthew's account begins in chapter 21, as Lucretia read it for you. And Jesus then arrives in Jerusalem. He rode into the city on a donkey and he was hailed by the crowd. The whole city was stirred, Matthew tells us. That's where we begin. Then Jesus made his way to the temple where he taught at considerable length during the week. In the evenings, he returned to Bethany, presumably to spend his night, spend the night with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The plot against Jesus begins to take shape, and by midweek, it is all set. Judas agrees to betray Jesus and strikes a bargain with the priests. The disciples prepare the Passover meal in the upper room, and after supper, they proceed to the garden. There Jesus prays, as you heard just a moment ago. He is arrested. Then he's questioned first by the Jews and then by the Roman authorities. And then comes crucifixion and death and burial, followed by Jesus' resurrection and his appearances to his followers. All of this... You can read in the scriptures, in the Gospels of the New Testament, but you also have the opportunity to come here on Wednesday night and see it all portrayed before you. It is a marvelous performance, mostly children, but also youth and adults. And, you know, it's a, it's a story to be lived into, not just to be read or told. And, the, and the, um, all the leaders here who prepare that Passion Play do it so well. Um, if you haven't seen the Passion Play here, you really need to. And if you have, you need to experience it again. Because it's not just a story. It's not just a story. It's exciting. It's filled with suspense and mystery. And I want to invite you this morning to stand back with me and look at what really happened here. Look at the scriptures and what they say. Not just the words we remember, but all of the movements of this story. As they approach Jerusalem, we are focused on Jesus, the leader. The leader and the focal point of this movement. He had a group of 12 who followed him closely. And then there were others who were more distant followers. A loose confederation of persons, all of them wanting and expecting different things from Jesus and none of them expecting what was about to happen. As the week passed, some of those followers fell away, some out of fear, out of disappointment, some because of betrayal, some because of denial. Until Easter, there only remained a small group shivering behind closed doors out of fear for their enemies. The story does not end, though, until that timid group is transformed into a mighty force that takes the good news of the resurrection throughout the world. And still, 2,000 years later, that mighty force is at work. How did he do that? How did Jesus accomplish so great a feat in so short a time? He spent perhaps as much as three years with his disciples, only three years. 
But as they approached Jerusalem the last time, they still didn't understand what was going on around them. And after his resurrection, they still weren't sure they understood or believed until Pentecost came some 50 days later. How did Jesus do it? How did he take such a motley crew of disciples, fishermen and tax collectors, and turn them into the apostles who spread the great good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world? What a leader he must have been. What an engaging leader he is, even yet. When I stand back and look at this story, that's the thing that impresses me more and more. The incredibly wise and disciplined and motivating and forward-looking leader that Jesus was. Most telling is the fact that his work continued and his work grew even after he departed. Even in the middle of Holy Week, even when he was overpowered by his enemies, he was still the leader. Unmistakable. Even as death approached, he maintained himself as the unmistakable leader. Seems to me, sisters and brothers, that we are in the market for just such leadership today. Courageous and strong and insightful and sensitive and wise. Unfortunately, that kind of leadership is not what we want and not what we are looking for. We're after something else. We want a winner. And we want our leaders to be winners, first and foremost. Winners are those who are number one, you know. They are the ones who come out on top, whether in an election or in a game. They come out on top. Winners have impeccable records. They win Academy Awards. They're recognized on the streets. Winners are. They're charismatic and rich. They have influential friends and contacts all over the world. Their beauty is celebrated in the news and their pride is emulated by young admirers. What's your image of a winner? Someone who's successful. A person you want your kids to be like. So here we are at Palm Sunday. And we remember, we celebrate this day of days when Jesus showed that he was a winner, right? No, not right, not at all. He was not a winner then. He's not a winner now, a leader, yes. Palm Sunday is not as much a day of triumph as it was a moment of truth. But a winner, not according to the kinds of leaders we look for, not according to the kinds of Winners that we seek and vote for and admire. That's not who Jesus was. Never was, never will be. Look at the, look at the story with me a bit close, more closely. When I open the, the text of the, the Bible I have on my desk and the one I use at home, there's a heading over this story. You know, in the, in Matthew 21, there's a heading over the story. It says, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But you know, those, those headings, wherever you find them, those headings are not part of the biblical text. They're added by someone later, and they're not always helpful. Here we have, on Palm Sunday, we have an unemployed peasant carpenter 
riding on a borrowed animal up a narrow, dirty street where an enthusiastic cluster of people are shouting and clearing his way with palm branches. And when he entered the city, he was met with recognition and acclaim, right? No, not at all. Look at the story again. Remember what I always tell you? Pay particular attention to the first thing and the last thing it says. The city was stirred not because they had rushed out to acclaim Jesus. The city was stirred because they didn't know what was going on. The people came out, looked around, maybe even took part. But what did they say? They said, who is this guy? Who is this guy? We don't know what's going on or why. And the followers of Jesus, the disciples who were right there with him, had to explain to people who this guy was, who this Jesus was, because they didn't know what was going on. And they didn't know who he was. Then, in, in just a matter of a couple of days, he was hounded and betrayed and arrested and murdered. In the garden, he descended into the depths of grief and disappointment, incredulous that things had deteriorated so rapidly from curiosity and respect and acclaim to mortal danger. Jesus was not a winner, not the kind of winner that we want and that we look for. And that's exactly the point of the Palm Sunday story. The kingdom of God does not belong to spit and polish. The kingdom of God does not belong to brass and braids, to preening and strutting and oversized egos. The kingdom of God is not about Academy Awards and power politics and auditoriums filled with admirers. It belongs to the meek and the lowly, those who ride in a borrowed car, I mean a borrowed donkey. Belongs to the meek and lowly. It belongs to one so knowledge, knowledgeable and sensitive that when he stood and looked into the soul of Jerusalem, he wept. You know what happens to people when they weep publicly, don't you? They don't win elections. If you want to understand the kind of leader that Jesus was, look at his teachings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the hungry. Jesus' introduction to the holy city on Palm Sunday was not from a reviewing stand. He was not wearing a neatly pressed uniform with stars glistening on his shoulders. There was no endless parade of centurions marching in smart formation. This was the Prince of Peace who had loved all sorts and conditions of people. The faithless and the slovenly, the diseased and the criminal, people who ate too much and drank too much and played too hard and married too often. He said, Love God with all your energies and your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Go the second mile. Turn the other cheek. Absurd teachings. Not the kinds of things that a winner says or a winner does. Not the kind of things we want our leaders saying and doing. In the middle of the last century, probably the most famous churchman of his time was a man named Albert Schweitzer. Many of you will remember, I remember him when I was a child, 
learning about him, and I remember, I remember his death in the mid-60s. But Albert Schweitzer was a um, well-schooled man. He had three earned doctorates in theology and music and medicine. And uh, he's best known for going to Central Africa and founding a hospital there in Lambrini Hospital. It still operates, by the way. And single-handedly sold his fortune and his possessions. He traveled the world raising money so that he could operate this hospital and tend to people in Central Africa. There was one time in Schweitzer's life when he came to this country. It was in the summer of 1949. I wasn't around yet. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> Lucre- oh. um, <laughs> um, and Schweitzer came uh, for the purpose of, well, as I said, raising money for his hospital in Lambrini. He arrived in New York, and he traveled several places. He spoke at universities because he was a scholar. He played the organ in churches because he was a musician. And he was well-received by the municipal leaders and the politicians wherever he went because he was an incredibly well-thought-of and famous man. Uh, at, at the point, I believe, when he arrived in Chicago, he traveled by train, by the way, He arrived at the train station in Chicago, and there they had set up on the platform a massive reviewing stand, whereupon all of the leaders of the city, of the universities, of the churches, had crowded onto this platform to greet and welcome the great Schweitzer to Chicago, his only visit to this country. And there was a band playing, of course, and the train arrived. And Mr. and Mrs. Schweitzer mounted the platform. And as they were standing there, there were speeches given, speeches from the politicians and the clergy and the educators, all talking about how wonderful it is that Schweitzer had come around the world to visit them and to tell them of his work in Lambrini. Finally, the podium moved around to the mayor of Chicago. And he had for Schweitzer, of course, the key to the city. But when he turned to present the great doctor with the key to Chicago, Schweitzer wasn't there. He had disappeared. And nobody knew where he was. Everybody, they were looking around. What what happened? Did he fall down? What happened to him? And then someone spotted him. He had gotten down off the platform and off of the reviewing stand and walked across the platform. And there he was helping an old lady lift her heavy suitcase from the train platform onto the train she was trying to get onto. Not what we expect of our leaders. Not what we expect of, of a winner who is receiving the accolades of a nation. But that's the kind of leader that Jesus was and that people like Schweitzer and so many others desire to be and work hard to be. I invite you today to look at a leader among leaders and to consider in the light of Jesus of Nazareth, consider how you are shaping your life and the life of your children and grandchildren for leadership in the kingdom of God 
Consider your heroes, your winners, and then allow Jesus to inform your values. Jesus of Nazareth is a leader of leaders. He always was. But we have to a large degree lost the ability to recognize his kind of leadership and follow his way. We are so focused on identifying winners and being winners ourselves that we overlook the sensitive forcefulness, the unconditional love, the self-sacrifice that are marks of the one whose kingdom will not end. Amen.